And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Dr. Anthony Fauci will step down this month as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, winding up a half century of leadership and discovery. He's been here with me before in 2020, but I wanted to get together again to look back at his extraordinary career, the lives he saved, and unanticipated controversy he confronted in trying to lead the country through the deadliest pandemic in a century. But before sharing that conversation, I also want to wish you all a very happy holiday season and new year. This will be our last new episode for 2022, but I look forward to getting together again on the other side for more conversations on The Axe Files. Now here's Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, great to see you again. As always, we've known each other for a long time, but this seems like a, a momentous time to uh, to chat as you wrap up your 54-year career at the NIH. How are you feeling? How you? Th- what are you thinking? Well, I'm, I'm feeling, uh, on, in some respects, good looking forward to, even though I'm stepping down from federal service, David, I'm not actually retiring in the classic sense, and I'm looking forward to some of the things I could do out of the venue of the federal government. But, you know, it's a very emotional feeling when you've been, you know, coming onto this campus every day, including most Saturdays for 54 years. And then you're going to realize that after the next few weeks, I'm not going to be part of this organization. Yeah. And it's been my life. It's been my entire professional life. So I have to say it's, it's, it's bittersweet. I'm grateful for the opportunity that I've had here, but I'm also sad about leaving so many people and so many memories. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I, I can only imagine. I'm, I'm uh, at the end of this month uh, leaving my job as director of the Institute of Politics, which I founded at the University of Chicago. But, you know, 10 years is 10 years, 54 is 54, but still uh, that is my community yeah, And as much as the work, which is energizing, I'm sure leaving your community is a very hard thing to do. Very hard, uh, David, because when you get to 54 years, virtually everybody that's immediately surrounding me and my large organization, like the, 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 the institute that I direct, you know, is a $6.3 billion institute with thousands of employees. And Virtually everybody in anything that even approaches leadership in the organization was either trained by or recruited by me. So they're really family. And it's kind yeah. of like all of a sudden you're, you're leaving the people in your family that you've been dealing with, you know, 15 hours a day, every day for a very long time. Yeah. How, how is that going to be? Do you think? Well, it, it's going to be tough. I think I, I'm. I'm pretty good at adapting, I, I believe, David, and and I I have a very good support structure at home. My wife, who's also an NIH employee, she heads one of the departments at the NIH at the clinical center, is is very good at lifting me up when I'm starting to feel <laughs> low. But 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 I have to tell you, I I really believe that my my balancing the the excitement and the energy about doing something new in mm-hmm. a different venue is somewhat, not completely, but somewhat counterbalancing. Sure. B- 
feeling of angst that you get when you're leaving something that you love. Yeah. You know, I, w- I was thinking about the, the sweep of your career, and I wanted to ask you, what has changed in terms of the science which you've helped advance over these last 54 years and approaches to science? And what has changed in society? And you've come, I thought of that this morning, and we'll talk about this more when I saw the atrocious uh, tweet from uh, Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, that just said Fauci slash prosecute. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure, and we'll talk about this, what it is that you would be prosecuted for other than saving millions of lives. So speaking of Musk, what did you think about that tweet this morning? You know, I'm getting asked by all of these people right today, come on the show and how do you respond to Elon Musk? I don't respond to him. I don't pay any attention to him because that's merely a distraction. And if you get drawn into that, and I have to be honest, that cesspool of interaction, it, it, it's, there's no value added to that, David. It doesn't help anything. Tell me about the change as you yeah. look back on the young Tony Fauci and the world you're leaving or walking out of at the NIH today. Well, you framed the question very well when you said, what has changed in the scientific and public health aspects and what has changed in the social and societal aspects of it. And that really is very important because what has changed is the phenomenal advances conceptually and technologically in the science that is my particular area of expertise. And I think a a typical example of that is what we were able to do in developing the COVID vaccines and have them going from the time we've identified the virus to the time we had a highly effective and safe vaccine going into the arms of individuals in literally less than a year, 11 months, which is beyond unprecedented. It never, when I walked into this, this campus 54 years ago, that would have been unimaginable. So the scientific advances have been extraordinary. Can I stop you there for a second? Because one of the things that strikes me, I, I think, you know, we'll talk about probably uh, more than you'd like, uh, your experience during this pandemic with uh, with President Trump, but he gets credit for uh, for uh, I- investing uh, in uh, uh, you know in the process that developed. Yeah, the Operation Warp Speed. Right? Yeah, but you know, I saw an interview you did with Wired magazine, and in which you said that built on years and years of scientific research. And I want you to talk about that because so much of science builds on research, sometimes research that starts in a very elemental way, and but all this investment pays off over time. Without a doubt. And that's one of the beauties and sometimes the mysteries of investment in undifferentiated fundamental basic research. Because if you look at the platform technology that led to the mRNA vaccine, and the structure-based vaccine design that led to the imidogen um, that we've used in virtually all of the vaccines, it doesn't happen overnight. It were people working on concepts that were not directed back then for a vaccine for COVID because COVID didn't even exist back then. But it was done in the spirit of discovery of the unknown in the realm of the biological sciences. 
That's a very, very important investment that we in the United States have done a very good job on in the consistent support of basic and clinical biomedical research. And the beauty of it is that it yields things sometimes decades later that lead to life-saving interventions. If you look at what the what the vaccine has done, it has probably saved millions of lives globally, certainly in the United States, likely hundreds of thousands of lives. You could say the same thing, David, about the basic research that went into virology and pharmacology and the development of drugs for HIV. Of course, in the very early years of my career, when I was taking care of desperately ill, mostly gay, young gay men with HIV, that it was virtually a death sentence. And now the advances that have occurred by the investments in basic and clinical biomedical research have changed that to the point where it's completely transformed the disease, that persons living with HIV, if they take their drugs, they can live essentially a normal life. That's all due to research. Yeah. Can we do more? And, and I, I, I interrupted your narrative. We'll, we'll get back to it. But, uh, you know, uh, you and I met uh, first, I think, because of my wife Susan's work around epilepsy and my daughter Lauren, you know, terribly impacted by uh, uh, uncontrolled seizures for the first part of her life. And my wife started this foundation. And, you know, we're always lamenting the lack of investment in uh, the kinds of sort of cutting edge research that is necessary. And that's what her foundation does. Are Should we be investing more in more? You cite things that represent, and this is your area, great public health threats. But there are a lot of different diseases out there and a lot of disorders that could yield to the kind of intensive research that we've seen in areas like HIV, in uh, COVID, in cancer. Absolutely. It isn't just the, the, the most obvious fields that lead to outbreaks and things like that, but there are so many areas of medicine that would benefit. And the track record of investment is clear, David. You, you don't need to try and persuade anybody about that. If you look at the investments that have been made in multiple different areas, are going to clearly advance the field forward and lead to definable interventions that could better the lives of people who are afflicted by these different diseases. So you were talking about the advances in science, and you offered uh, your examples. But there have also, science and technology has also driven other elements of our society. Uh, Social media is one of them. Uh, And we've seen divisiveness grow up around that. And you've been sort of caught up in the middle of it. We mentioned the Musk, uh, the Musk uh, tweet, but there, there was a hugely uh, divisive reaction to the things that you essentially recommended, prescribed yeah. when you were, uh, you know, managing this uh, COVID pandemic. Where does science stand in this world where scientific discovery and recommendations then get demonized by conspiracy theory. Well, that's a very dangerous trend that we're we're in now. And in fact, it seems to be getting worse. David, one of the things that has been so counterproductive to our adequate response to COVID-19 has been the fact that our response has occurred in the midst 
of a period of unprecedented divisiveness in our country. I mean, probably going back to the Civil War, uh, I don't think we've ever seen this type of divisiveness. It's particularly poignant when divisiveness spills over into a response to a public health challenge. I mean, the idea that people's decisions about whether or not to take a life-saving intervention like a vaccine or to wear a mask, which has clearly been shown to prevent the transmission and acquisition of infection, is based not on solid scientific evidence, which is very clear and irrefutable, but based on ideological considerations. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, as a physician and a scientist, it, it kind of pains me to see that people will suffer and perhaps lose their lives because ideologically they don't want to do something purely for ideological considerations. When the data are crystal clear, when you look at the role of vaccines in preventing severe disease leading to hospitalizations and death, it is really a very bad trend. And it's sort of becoming almost anti-science in general, not just anti-COVID science, but anti-any science, which is, I believe, very dangerous. And when you live in an arena where the spouting of untruths becomes almost normalized because it's done so much and propagated so much, you know, I'm not a politician, never was, don't ever want to be, but it just seems to me that that's a profound threat on our democracy when untruths dominate the dialogue. Yeah, well, particularly, uh, I mean, in many areas, but in this area, you know, I, I, I saw, and some of this is because children weren't able to go to their doctors during the uh, pandemic and so on, but you've seen an increase in measles, for example, in places, uh, you know, and uh, some some hints that diseases that we thought were completely under control could flare up again. So this anti-vax movement and this anti-science movement could have continued profound implication. Oh, absolutely. Because the anti-vax approach to COVID could spill over into the vaccine approach that has been standard and accepted for decades, the childhood vaccination program. Whenever you pull back on vaccinations for things like measles, You see outbreaks, you see hospitalizations, and ultimately you'll be seeing deaths, completely unavoidable suffering of children, merely because parents don't want to vaccinate their children. Completely avoidable, you mean, I think. Yeah, avoidable, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Congress is now trying to uh, pass a Defense Authorization Act, as they do every year. One of the provisions that was added... uh, the Republican uh, caucus and the Senate asked for, uh, eliminated a requirement that uh, our servicemen and women be vaccinated for COVID. Uh, What was your reaction to that? Well, again, first I might say that the whole idea of mandating something, it's understandable that people push back on that. But sometimes that becomes a necessary phenomenon that you have to deal with. It seems paradoxical that The military is required to have a lot of different vaccines. It isn't just COVID. So it's sort of paradoxical. They know they don't want to mandate a COVID vaccine, but they mandate all the other vaccines that the military gets when they get uh, enrolled and enlisted 
into military service. So there's some really significant inconsistencies there, David. Yeah. So are you worried about it? Yeah, I am. I mean, force protection is very important. You want the military with the responsibility of defending the country to be maximally protected against anything that would interfere with the capability of the force to function properly. Where are we with COVID? We see increases. It was predicted that there would be in the winter when people go inside. How would you assess the status of COVID right now? Well, if you look at and compare it to where we were, we're in a much, much better place. You know, a year ago or more, we were having anywhere from 800 to 900,000 infections a day and between three and 4,000 deaths per day. I remember, by the way, when you uh, engendered all of this negative reaction, when you suggested there might be 100,000 cases, and that turned out to be a modest estimate. Right, about one-eighth of what what actually happened. Uh, The same thing with deaths. I was talking about 200,000 deaths, and people were slamming me at congressional hearings for that. Now we have over a million deaths. So, but with the issue of, of your, your specific question, David, we're much better off, but we are really not out of the woods. We're still having about 300 or 400 deaths a day. That is an unacceptably high level. We are now going into the colder months of the late fall and the early winter. The holiday season is coming up. People will congregate indoors and we are already seeing an uptick in infections. And with that, will likely come an uptick in hospitalizations. One of the things that's reasonably good news is that recently, given the number of people that have been vaccinated, even though it isn't at a level that we would think would be optimal, and the number of people have already been infected and recovered, that the degree of immunity within society is high enough that we likely will not see Comparatively speaking, the ratio of hospitalizations to infections will not be as high as they were earlier on a year or so ago. So what we're hoping is that with the inevitable increase in infections, which will occur, particularly because people now very, very rarely wear masks. You go to indoor settings, you see very few people wearing masks. We hope that we don't see a major blip in hospitalizations. One of the things that is disturbing to me is that a rich, so-called enlightened nation, we've only vaccinated 68% of the total population, only a half of those have received a single boost, and an astounding number to me is that with the updated BA.4.5 booster that has recently become available, only 13% of the eligible population has been vaccinated. That is very disturbing. That's very disturbing. Yeah. You know, you talked about uh, the things that had to be done in order to stem this virus, and particularly when we were awaiting uh, the vaccines. But I want to ask you something. Do you find yourself questioning what might we have done differently? Were there things we should have done? Were we, for I give you an example, I mean, there's a great deal of consternation among a lot of parents in the country about. What you know, the loss of time in the classroom that their kids suffered, and uh, that's been a big part of the sort of reaction to uh, yeah. some of the COVID 
restrictions. Do you think looking back, you know, at this point, maybe like September of 21 or we could have done more. We could have opened up a little bit more. We could have been a little more liberal about about that. Yeah. Do you lay awake at night? I don't know if you ever sleep, but if you lay awake at night, do you think about, gee, I wish we would have done this or we would have done that? I constantly do that. You always try and just cross-check yourself. Could I have done better? Did we do the right thing so that you can essentially be ready to hopefully do better the next time around? I think the original shutting down that we had to do, it was imperative. The question is how long you do it. So if you look at a couple of facts, that when we decided back then when I was in the Trump White House that we were going to try and essentially flatten that curve um, because we were being faced with an untenable situation. You recall, David, that at that time, our hospitals were on the brink of being overrun. Remember the freezer and cooler trucks outside the hospitals, particularly in New York City the famous Elmer's Hospital that virtually got overrun. Yes. You had to do something rather draconian to stop it, and that is to shut down. And we did. And that was the right choice because undoubtedly that saved lives. With that came the closing of the schools. Now, the question is that you want to reexamine. I have always said, and you can go back and look at the record, that we should try and get the children back in school as quickly as we possibly can and safely back in school. And you do that before the children had vaccines available to them by vaccinating the people who will become in contact with the children, by providing good ventilation in the schools, by when children are eligible to be vaccinated, to vaccinate them. I have always been a proponent of that. Could we have done that better? Yes, of course, David. We didn't do it perfectly. Some things we did very well and some things we could have done better. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You mentioned Trump. And I know you stood behind him at some of these press conferences. And if there were a bubble box over your head, I can only imagine what the the words, there probably would have been some New York words in there that the president would have understood. But uh, when he stood at the podium and he talked about hydroxychloroquine or when he talked about bleach, when he raised questions about masks and so on, did that make your job harder? Was Did it make the task of quelling the virus harder. Yeah, it did, David. And that's why I had to make and I made a decision which cost me. It was the right decision. I'd do it again. I was put in a position that was uncomfortable, but I had to do what I did. And that is to publicly contradict the president of the United States. And as I've said continually, I have a great deal of respect for the office of the presidency of the United States. And it was not a positive thing for me to be standing there and saying, no, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. No, the virus is not going to disappear like magic. Yes, we need to continue to test. By stopping testing, that doesn't mean there are no cases. It means you're not noticing the cases. Um, That was a difficult thing to do, but I felt I had a responsibility besides to my own 
personal and professional integrity, I had a responsibility to the American public to tell them what the evidence showed and not what you'd like to hear. So that was uncomfortable. And as you know, that created sort of like an, a, a, a waves of hostility towards me on the part of people around the president. Well, what about waves of hostility from the president? Did he exchange any New Yorkisms with you? Well, occasionally he did, but you know, it was it was much more the the pushback with the pushback is a mild word, the outright hostility that was unleashed against me. It was kind of an interesting in palace intrigue where you had the communications staff of the White House doing opposition research on me. <laughs> Could you imagine when you were in the White House, David, doing operation, opposition research on one of your staff? Well, when I was there, we had our hands full, so I don't think I'd be spending time on that, no. So, and the other thing is to, is to for example, to allow somebody like Peter Navarro to write an editorial saying, I didn't know what I was talking about. I mean, that's- I think he's called you a sociopath. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know some would say projection. I, I don't know, but I'm not a professional. But I want to talk about this because, you know, I, I think I think you're a guy of probity and uh, you've always been straightforward in my dealings with you and in my observation of you. And there's one thing on which that baffles me, okay? Because every time you get asked about the fact that, I mean, you you were made a target not just in front of congressional committees, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, but on social media, uh, in a way that required you and your family to have security. You probably still have it. I do. When I heard you with Chris Wallace in the show that was aired yesterday, and you said, and you said this to me a couple of years ago, I think, I find it bizarre. I find this bizarre. And I'm thinking, bizarre, your family is under threat. How about outraged? Yeah. How, how how about besides yourself? Because your family didn't sign up for that. Right, right. Yeah, that's the part that bothers me the most. And if I have any muted outrage, it's because of that. I mean, the idea that my children get hassled and, you know, in a, in a very bad way, I mean, with sexual innuendos and vulgarities and physical threats. My wife also, that does outrage me. You know, the idea about I, I chose this life. They did not. Although you didn't cho when choosing this life, I'm sure no. the young Tony Fauci 54 years ago didn't say, well, no. I better bound down the hatches because I'm going to be under threat here for trying no. to solve a, an epidemic or a pandemic. That was unimaginable at the time, David, it was, but you know, I, I'm in it and, and it's, I meant bizarre. It just seems so strange. It's a reflection, David on something that worries me, again, I mentioned this a little bit ago, that goes well beyond me. I think it's a reflection of the threat on our democracy when you have conspiracy theories and the normalization of untruths, mm -hmm. that it's so common to be spread around that we almost accept it as part of normal discourse, and it isn't. I agree with that. I just want to return to your own situation for a second. How did your family process this? I mean, what kind of discussions did you have with them? And I just, I'm trying to imagine what it's, well, I mean, I was in public life and I 
there were threats against me and so on. But, it, you know, I never, not to the degree in any way, shape or form that you have experienced. And I'm just wondering, how did it affect your family? Well, it was disturbing to them for two reasons. It disrupted because of the name recognition now. What I would think an element of their normal young, I have three daughters, their their young life that they should be not worried or hassled about somebody saying you're Fauci's daughter and either give you praise or say evil things to you or to harass you where you work, your cell phone. My wife is worried about my safety, um, maybe a bit more than I am because I, I tend to not concentrate on that, but she's quite concerned. You know, when you see what happened with Paul Pelosi, uh, those are the things that, you know, that loving wives worry about. And she does. Yeah. And do you anticipate that you'll have to maintain this security after you leave? And is that your responsibility to do that now? Or does the government do that? Or Yeah, that's being worked out right now. I I believe I'm going to get some help from the White House on that. Yeah, that's just, it's so sad, really. And outrageous. Returning uh, to the Congress, I remember some of the early confrontations were over your your skepticism about whether the um, virus originated in the lab that was funded by the Chinese lab that was funded uh, in part by the NIH. I mean, the latest studies sort of bear out your skepticism. I think there were a couple this summer in Science Magazine that were independent of each other that came to the same conclusion. There was probably the wet markets right. in animals to human transmission. But that's one of those things that lived online, right. that you had done this to protect the lab. Right. I know. Complete fabrication. The, the other thing that, that gets lost in the shuffle, and I don't, I don't blame people for not understanding it, the accusations of the conspiracy is that what was funded by the NIH for the Chinese to do were very good experiments that led to the surveillance of what was out there to understand the animal-human interface because those types of experiments led to the absolute proof that SARS-CoV-1 back in 2002, you remember the first Mm -hmm. SARS outbreak, which led to 8,000 cases and 781 deaths, the studies that we funded actually showed definitively that that virus went from a bat to an intermediate host, which happened to be a civet cat, which is sold at the wet markets, to a human. So the studies that were being done were surveillance studies. There is an inappropriate conflation saying, ah, the studies that you funded led to COVID, which is quite frankly, David, molecularly impossible. Because if you look at the viruses that were being worked on, that were being published in the peer-reviewed international literature, they were so far removed phylogenetically from SARS-CoV-2 that even if the scientists deliberately tried to turn that into COVID, they couldn't. And yet that gets escaped. They say, ah, you funded research that led to COVID. You know, the way Rand Paul said, you're responsible for the death of 5 million people, which is outlandish and outrageous. But heard, it was heard out there. Yeah. Um, now, he was a, he's a medical doctor. Did that add to your 
incredulousness about it? Yeah, yeah, of course. He should have known better. And I think he does know better. I think he was playing to the cameras, quite frankly. I know your relationships are very probably largely uh, related to the community that you work and live in. But were there relationships of yours, uh, any, any relationships, family relationships or friendships that were damaged by all of this? No, my, my my friends and my family have been extremely supportive about this. You know, there may be some cousin to a cousin to an uncle who <laughs> wants to hit me over the head with a hammer, but not anybody that I can recognize, David. Yeah, well, screen your family reunions well. Will you? <laughs> exactly. So, in terms of the in terms of pandemics, and I do want to spend some time recalling your role on HIV/AIDS, which was truly heroic, for which you won the Medal of Freedom, and we will. But looking forward, the world is changing partly because of climate. And I'm wondering if we should expect episodes like this, pandemics, more frequently because of the changing nature, the people living more more closely together and so on. Is that a concern? And if so, are we prepared for it? Yeah, well, it is a valid concern, David particularly when anything that causes a perturbation of the animal-human interface, be it the way people encroach upon otherwise virgin rainforests, the way climate changes influences the movement of animals in and out of particular interactions with humans. Um, Absolutely. And particularly with travel now that, you know, you can be in one part of the world and 18 hours later around the world halfway there the the danger it has increased that microbes will emerge because 75% or more of the microbes that have emerged like hiv and ebola and zika all animal reservoir viruses that have jumped species and any time you perturb that interface you can be sure that there's a greater likelihood now that we're talking about is the emergence of a new microbe whether that emergence turns into a pandemic relates to your second question, is how well are we prepared to deal with the emergence of a new outbreak? And that's called pandemic preparedness. And I would have hoped that we learned some important lessons from this very painful experience that we've gone through with COVID, namely the importance of building up the local public health infrastructure, the importance of the investments in basic and clinical biomedical research to develop the countermeasures like vaccines. So yeah, we can do better in preparing. I mean, I guess what I'm asking you, because you're sitting there with a unique vantage point, are we doing it right now? Is Are we doing adequate work to prepare for future threats like this so as to avoid the sort of massive loss of life that we've seen through COVID and, and the disruption of lives? So the answer is we have a plan for that. And with all due fairness, the Congress, both sides of the aisle, have done a phenomenal job over the last three years in investing billions and billions of dollars in COVID response. But what we need now looking forward is we need to fund the pandemic preparedness plan. That is a really very good plan that we put together. However, there's now a reluctance on the part of Congress to give any supplemental money towards preparing for pandemics 
And certainly we don't see it built into any base budget because we're still on a continuing resolution. Right. And it is possible we will be for the rest of the year, for all we know. Yeah. And what are the ramifications of that? Well, the ramifications of being on a continuing resolution is that- No, not on the continuing resolution, but what are the ramifications of of inadequately funding? Well, that's the point. And that's what I mean. If you can inadequately fund pandemic preparedness, you're going to be behind the eight balls should something else arise in the future. And that's the reason for- consistent investments in this particular area. I know this is such an area of pride for you, but talk to me about, we talked about this last time we got together here at this podcast, but the initial sort of discoveries relative to HIV, AIDS, and what that led to. And because I think it, if anyone was writing a, a retrospective on your career, it really should start there. Right. Well, no doubt. I mean, I think what, what we've been able to accomplish in a very disturbing and painful disease, which has killed so many millions of people throughout the world, HIV, it is truly a historic success story. And I've had the, you know, I would say the opportunity and the privilege in some respects to have had that experience of taking care of persons with HIV, mostly young, otherwise healthy gay men, in 1981, two, three, four, five, six, seven, when we didn't have drugs for them and watching how virtually all of my patients died. And as a physician who was taking on hands care of these people, it was a very painful and dark experience. And then with the discovery of the virus and the development of drugs, to see that transformed into a situation where a person with HIV if taking their drugs that are now available in one pill, you can actually lead essentially a normal lifespan and a healthy life, which would seem completely out of the question during the dark years when we were just putting Band-Aids on hemorrhages metaphorically and not doing anything to save the life of individuals. Now, we have situations where not only can these people live normal lives, but we have prevention, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which can very effectively prevent the acquisition of infection. What a journey that has been, David. It's been extraordinary. And then through the PEPFAR program to yes. make it available to people in the low and middle income countries is another dramatic success story. Yeah, the PEPFAR program uh, launched by President Bush to uh, deal particularly in Af Africa with rampant cases of HIV. And you were very instrumental in developing and helping implement that program. And it saved tens of millions of lives. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now... Back to the show. We talked before about politics, the politics of this moment. Talk about the politics of that moment. How much of an obstacle was homophobia in mobilizing public interest and resources to do what needed to be done? You know, I think very early on in the outbreak, the, the, you know, insidious and below the radar screen and sometimes overt homophobia 
I think, uh, sort of blunted the general public interest in doing something about this. And early on, you know, the bully pulpit of the leadership and government was not utilized properly to call the attention to this emerging outbreak. So that had a uh, an interference. The thing I often get asked is the pushback on the part of the activists on what yes, was that wrong. in fact, you know, when you talk about being abused, <laughs> yeah. you were you were quite a target. Yeah, but but the difference, David, is profound. Uh and I and I enjoy explaining it because one can understand you show on a TV screen pictures of people demonstrating, saying, you know, Fauci, you're murdering us, you know, killing us. What are you doing? And then you show another picture, fast forward 40 years of people saying, you know, put him in jail, prosecute him. There was a major, major difference. Back then, they were, they being the mostly gay activists, was trying to gain the attention of the leadership at the federal level, both the scientific and the regulatory and leadership. And they had good reason to, because what we were doing was rigid and it wasn't suited to the novel. Because, because there were experimental drugs that were not widely available. They weren't widely available. And the entry criteria to get into a clinical trial was too pristine, as it were, to accommodate what individuals needed. And they wanted to be, they being the gay activists, wanted to be part of the dialogue about looking at, are we doing it right? Is the design user-friendly enough? Are the regulatory restrictions too rigid? And when they did all of those dramatic, iconoclastic, theatrical things that looked like they really wanted to come after us, they just wanted our attention. And I can tell you, of all the things I've done in my professional career, David, one of the best things I ever did was to sit back put aside the theatrics and listen to what they were saying because what they were saying was making perfect sense. And I said to myself, if I were in their shoes, I would be doing exactly what they would be doing. I would be demonstrating on the lawn of the NIH to get things changed. And that led to the beginning of, a, of something that went from confrontation to understanding to collaboration to actual friendship. That is much, much different than people based on a conspiracy theory who are trying to, quote, prosecute you. There's a big difference there. By the way, on this prosecution issue, which I don't think is, is at issue, but you are, you know, incoming House leadership has made clear that you, they want to see you, they want to question you and so on. Uh, I've heard you say you welcome that. I do. I do. Yeah, that's the pugnacious uh, New York guy. That's Brooklyn speak. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. And you'd probably be a little less restrained now without your official encumbrances. Yeah. Well, I will always be respectful uh, uh, because, again, I do have a great deal of respect for the institutions of government. I said I have a great deal of respect for the office of the presidency. I also have a great deal of respect for our Congress, the Senate and the House. And I would be very happy because I, I believe the concept of oversight is an important concept. And I've always cooperated and will continue to cooperate. The thing I get a little bit put aback about when it isn't oversight, it's ad hominem, mm -hmm. which is the difference between oversight and ad hominem. But I would still cooperate to the best of my capability. But the, And there probably is, as you discussed earlier, there were 
lessons learned. There were mistakes made. There were judgments that might have been different in the full blush of history here, knowing what you know now. Absolutely. That may be applicable in the, uh, in the future. So one of the things that has been very interesting to watch is what's going on in China right now. Uh, and I'm sure you're watching it with great interest. They took a different approach right. to the virus. They they did very draconian lockdowns, more draconian than than we uh, had here. But they maintained it for years, right? Until there has been a public upheaval that even in an authoritarian state moved the policymakers there to make a change. There were some fundamental differences, other differences there that led to this. How do you evaluate what they're doing? What do you foresee for them now that they're opening up? Yeah. Well, whenever you're going to do something as dramatic as restrictions, whether it's the moderate type restrictions we did or the rather severe restrictions where they essentially lock people in their own homes, you always have to do it with an end game, David. You have to do it and say, I'm doing this for a purpose to get out of the restriction. So for example, if you're having an overrunning of your hospitals and you have to immediately stop the tsunami of cases, what you do is you lock down so that A, you can get better hospital bed preparation, you can get more ventilators, you can get more PPE so that you can now open and do it relatively safely without overrunning the system. When you're in an era of vaccines, where vaccines are available, if you're going to lock down, you need to use that time to get as many people vaccinated as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can, particularly the vulnerable elderly. What the Chinese did, I don't want to be judgmental about the Chinese, but from my vantage point, what they did that was ill-advised, they locked down strictly And they didn't use the time to get their population, particularly the elderly, vaccinated. And they tried it when they did with a vaccine that was substandard. They should have gotten vaccines like the mRNAs, vaccines that we used, get it to their population and put a lot of pressure on the elderly to get vaccinated. They didn't do that. They just locked down. Why? I, I, I've read some of something about this, but why do you think that they would not accept Western vaccines that have been developed here? You know, I, I think just, I, I don't know for sure, David, but I, I think a good guess would be it was the typical nationalistic pride that many countries have, that China certainly has a lot of that. And they just felt that they could do it. And they had a vaccine that didn't work very well. And they didn't vaccinate the vulnerable. That was the important point. So it doesn't do you any good to just lock down if you're not going to use the time to do something to allow you to safely reopen. This reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about earlier about things that might have been done differently. You know, after the vaccines arrived and the vaccine program was underway, at some point, Lena Wen, who you know well, uh, was writing in the Post and been on this podcast, she's talked about this, about the need to vaccinate the vulnerable, as you suggest, and accept the fact that others will make their decisions and some will be impacted because of it, and that you have to accept that, uh, sort of a mixed approach. 
should there have been more of that? Was that discussed? Was that how, how do you modulate that? Yeah, I mean, we strongly recommended that virtually everybody get vaccinated. Clearly, the benefit of a vaccine is much more realized in vulnerable. And by vulnerable, it's essentially all the elderly, just on the basis of age, your immune system doesn't function as well. Those with underlying conditions, those who have immune compromise should clearly be have a very strong recommendation to get vaccinated. You can recommend that others for a couple of reasons. One, although the vaccines don't protect against infection as well as they protect against clinical disease and severe disease, you still diminish somewhat the acquisition of infection and therefore secondarily the spread of infection. So you want to get the population with a blanket of protection because an otherwise healthy 25-year-old person may get infected and either get no symptoms or mild symptoms, yet that person could go home and give it to someone like a grandparent because of age or someone who's on chemotherapy for cancer or someone who has an underlying immune compromised condition. So it isn't only about you. We're not living in a vacuum. You've got to take some sort of societal responsibility, not only for your own health, but the fact that in many respects, your health impacts the health of others. I agree with your point. Her her point was you could isolate those people who are most vulnerable, try and protect them from others, get them the vaccines, and be more open uh, about uh, unwinding these these restrictions. But in any case, I want to ask you about you, about going out, because, you know, when we did our first podcast, we talked about your extraordinary life and you know, I would have to describe you as a type A plus personality. Uh, and maybe this was passed down in your family. You said you always knew you wanted to be a doctor. Right. And that your mother encouraged you in that direction. Yes. Yes. And you worked very, very hard to get there. Even as you were an athlete, right? you'd play basketball hours a day. You'd get on the train and go to find pickup games and and still find time for your studies. People should listen to that podcast and they'll get the whole story. And the reason I'm raising all of this is I'm trying to understand how you are going to accept this next phase. How are you going to deal with this next phase? How are you going to keep yourself challenged in the way that you've challenged yourself? Or or do you see yourself on a sort of, yeah, I can do half of what I'm doing now and still be satisfied? Like, How does a type A plus personality wind down just a little bit? You know, David, I don't know the answer to the question because I don't know how I'm going to feel. I know what I want to do, whether I can do that and still feel good about myself by doing it at a lower and slower pace than I'm doing now. I think I can, but I'm going to have to wait and see how my inner spirit reacts to that. But one of the things that I want to do is I want to be able to inspire younger people to go into science, medicine, and public health. And I can do that by writing, by lecturing, and perhaps writing a memoir so that people, particularly younger people, can say, you know, maybe this is an example of something I want to emulate. To me, that would give me a great deal of satisfaction. If I can do that, 
at a pace that's less than my 17-hour-a-day pace now, <laughs> I would welcome that. And you probably still have time for the 80s and up uh, pickup games yeah. over at the Y. You can resume your basketball career. Yeah. Well, you should do that. You really should uh, share the lessons of your career. And, um, you know, uh, one thing that I want to do as part of this podcast officially suggest to you that one of your stops should be at the University of Chicago because we have an ex excellent medical center there, but also a lot of young people who are interested in public health and in this challenge that we talked about at the beginning, which is how uh, science can help save us and how we can help save science, Right. which seems to me one of the fundamental questions of our time. I agree. And I think the latter part is very important. And that's one of the things that I want to work on uh, is to see if we can get back that feeling of enthusiasm and excitement about science as opposed to bordering on an anti-science, non-trusting scientist approach, which is very dangerous, I believe, David. What's been caught up in this argument about freedom and what is freedom? And it was interesting you said before, we have societal obligations. We do. We stop at red lights. Uh, we do all kinds of things that we accept because it is in our interest and in other people's interest to do it. So this is a conversation that we have to continue to have because I think the advances in science are breathtaking. They are. And the problems we have are serious. And to the extent that science can help us meet those challenges, we need to be able to embrace that and uh, have these discussions. So hopefully you will be in the middle of those discussions. In a, and um, I look forward to hearing more, more from you. Thank you, David. It's always great to chat with you. I really appreciate it. And best of luck as we make our respective transitions, doctor. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.